Hello and welcome to Pop Screen, part of the Geek Show Podcast Network. We are the Geek Show's podcast dedicated to movies by, starring, or about pop stars. No, the podcast covers such a broad range of musical and cinematic genres, from country and western to hip hop, from documentaries to science fiction. My name's Graham Williamson. I'm a film reviewer for Horrified.com and thegeekshow.co.uk. I also write booklets for Second Run DVD, and this week I've been joined by... By Rob Simpson, SI editor for The Geek Show. Indeed. Today, Rob and I are watching a film that takes us to a strange alternative Tokyo, a world where the DJing granny challenges us to cop these slamming beats from the ass end of hell, the worst part in my opinion, uh, it can only be the never-knowingly understated world of Sion Sono, the Japanese maverick behind Suicide Club, Love Exposure, Why Don't You Play in Hell, and Prisoners of the Ghostland, the latter of which oh. just played Sundance and was hailed by Nicolas Cage as his weirdest ever movie. <laughs> and he's Nicolas Cage! So, if you want to prepare for that, you can't. But the nearest you can possibly do is travel back to 2014 and take a look at his gangland hip-hop musical, Tokyo Tribe. His gangland hip-hop musical, which was basically a blockbuster. This isn't some small indie film. What Was it very successful in Japan? I, I don't know if it was successful, just sort of like the scale of it. It's well, a yes. huge film. Yeah, he transforms like a good chunk of land into this version of Tokyo that he's... He's uh, Santa Inoue, who did the original uh, manga mm. conceived. Because one of the things that struck me, because I'm doing pop screen and because I'm very alert to the way that certain motifs and plot points recur in movies that otherwise are about very different musical themes, is this opens with that big tracking shot around the neighbourhood, which is the same thing that opens Expresso Bongo, it's the same thing that opens Absolute Beginners and I was really impressed yeah. that suddenly you've got that in a very different, very un-British context. Yeah, because it goes from gang to gang I uh, can't remember the names is the Gira Gira Girls mm. um, oh that's where I get a bit because there's about four or five of them, isn't there? There's one of them that's called the Musashino Nice Guys, and you just think, I don't fancy your chances much around here, I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah. But like each of them is sort of styled after a different type of hip-hop, aren't they? Yes, yeah, they're, they're like not just coded by clothes or slang or all of the other things that gang movies traditionally do to differentiate the cast they all have a different rapping style and a different backing music the one thing which it's a hip-hop well it's a rock opera basically hmm. there's a lot of the exposition a lot of the um pieces are actually wrapped and there's Lots of rappers in this. I mean, I'm not hugely au fait with the Japanese hip-hop scene. No, me neither. Young Days is the connection here. That's D-A-I-S. Mm. And he's sort of like a quite mainstream, pop-friendly version of hip-hop. Mm. Um, it's kind of weird to experience Japanese hip-hop because it's for such a style of music, it's all about the rhyming structure. Yeah. Not knowing a language kind of makes it a weird exercise, but 
lots of people from that scene are dotted through it. And there's also actors who also lend themselves to rapping. And I That's couldn't say that. Yeah. I couldn't anywhere else in the world. Uh, I don't think I could say that because it just backfired horribly. It'd be that weird sort of 90s style rapping, which Will Smith did. Certainly <laughs> elevated talking, I guess you could call it. Well, I love that. Yeah, elevated talking. I did think that it is a very complex narrative with a lot of uh, interlocking factions, uh, which makes it a great shame that no point does anyone say, my name is so-and-so and I'm here <laughs> to say, which is how, how raps should start. Oh, Will Smith. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's it, like a short of Samatani, he's done a lot of work with uh, Sion Sono before, uh, Hamitsu he was in, um, other stuff, I think he was in, I always remember it as the Bourne uh, detectives, but I never remember the name of it, because it's uh, about a bunch of teenage lads who are part of a detective society and a big running gag throughout it is just the big prosthetic Bourne's that always have when some woman <laughs> um, becomes part of the situation. It's like not watching that one. <laughs> cinema opens your mind to different cultures. I think that's what's so great about it. Yeah. Yeah. But he he's like the narrator and he does pretty well for himself, you know, all considered. Yeah. I don't know if he's got any history in rap, but he he, he, he um, does well for himself. I did wonder whether maybe part of that is because, I mean, he's not bad. He's a bit slow, but nowadays with like SoundCloud rap, if you're not actively on Mogadon, you can probably manage to keep up with those guys. Yeah, yeah. But another actor, I don't know, I, I probably should have the names in front of me. Uh, let's, let's see this guy uh, who is basically like the antagonist. A oh. mirror, Ryuhei Suzuki. Yes, yeah. He who spends a lot of his time in a jockstrap, a remarkable amount of the film's own time in a jockstrap. And he's a handsome guy as well, so I imagine there's a, an audience in Japan of, of women who and men who absolutely adore this. Yeah, I mean, I'm not actively complaining. It's just even in the context of a Sion Sono film, I was expecting there's going to be a point where he puts on some goddamn clothes. It's kind of a, I'm not going to spoil the ending, but his state of undress is kind of related to the big twist of why this all happens. And yes. it kind of the right sort of absurd for this sort of thing. The ending is very, very funny and reminded me strangely of the Battle of the Networks in Anchorman. <laughs> yeah. But the plot is all over the place, isn't it? Oh, yeah. Uh, you'll notice that we haven't done a recap because it would take up the whole show. But just for the sake of trying, mm. um, there's a gang which are trying to take over, the Mera gang, Led by or oh, names again, names. Uh, is this uh, Ricky Takeuchi? Yes, R Ricky Takeuchi, Bupper. And the only way to describe Bupper is imagine someone who has a reputation for being a bit of a wild card being given infinite access to cocaine. And, <laughs> <laughs> and you have Bupper. Um, Bupper is kind of like the, the, the He's the boss, basically. There's lots of other gangs, but he wants to be the legit boss. Hmm. Um, 
and he's got a relationship with a society in China, I think it's implied as being, and the daughter's gone missing. Hmm. Yeah. Uh, there's lots of going on here. And the daughter ends up hanging out with the nice guy gang. Who were her and... best bet, really, under oh, the circumstances. <laughs> and through Mera basically doing things he shouldn't and poking the bear and releasing this gang of... Um, this secret gang within a gang, an entire massive gang war takes off. I think that's about covered the bases. I just love how you have to just say the word gang so many times that it lives as old meaning if you want to recap this film. He's got a gang and there's a gang within the gang, but then someone thinks, hang on, we can infiltrate the gang within the gang by becoming a gang within the gang within the gang. It's... <laughs> <laughs> it really does fit. And it is, it's absurd. Hmm. The level of absurd where it could alienate you so easy. Ricky Takeuchi's bopper is just astonishingly over the top. It's one of those performances where calling it good or bad is beside the point. It is mm -hmm. just a force of nature. It exists. You can't ignore it. Well, it's just the stuff he does. <laughs> He, he when, when he's brought on, he's got a line in his opening rap that says, I got where I am through murder. Do you think, oh, that, that does surprise me, because I'd assumed you just, like, sent 10 coupons off and became a Yakuza boss, but okay, right, <laughs> fine. <laughs> and there's multiple, I can't, like, dance around this, but he's got a sex aid that he just starts, yeah, doing stuff with whenever one his busty mistress turns up. Yes. Furiously. Yes. There's no way to sort of talk about that gently, you know, without being demonetized. He has dinner with some politicians from the Literal Demagogue Party. That is the party's name, the Literal Demagogue Party, which I didn't know whether that was a topical stab at Nick Clegg from Sion Sono there. Maybe, maybe. Uh, yeah, he's nothing about him is subtle, even in the context of a film that is so far beyond subtle, he is the least subtle ingredient in it. Yeah, because his family is nuts. Even mm. before his family, he's got a, a maid, a beatboxing maid. Yes. I have to look it up who it was, um, and she's kind of renowned in Japan. She's called Saiba Kaori. If you, you look her up on YouTube, there's a video of her just walking down in Market Street in Japan with a camera sort of pulling back of her through the street and everybody's looking at her and it's like super awkward. It's so <laughs> awkward. And, he, and the fact that she did that off her own back, it explains how she can be this character in this movie. Yes. <laughs> yeah, uh, she's pretty incredible. And Bupper's son has like, living furniture like the statue furniture from a clockwork orange except it's actual people yeah they seem happy to do it as well which is a weird thing i mean if the pay is good you're not massively <laughs> expending much effort for it it's probably all right isn't it 
I guess. <laughs> he also and, has uh, his daughter, who you don't see until later on in the film, has loves Bruce Lee. Yeah, which makes her sort of like normal. Yeah, in the grand scheme of things. But his son also has these really long pigtails, which I maybe as a Westerner I would not associate with gangsters. I would associate them with Beryl the Pebble, but not gangsters. <laughs> well, sometimes, sometimes you do get it in uh, Black American gangs on I the guess, occasion. Yeah, I mean, uh, for a while, Snoop Dogg he had a style of haircut that could be called pigtails. He did, didn't he? Yeah. Maybe that's how it works. You have to establish yourself so that no one says, <laughs> got pigtails, mate. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's such a weird family. Um, yes. And the fact that they're in awe to this almost death cult. Mm. It's, it's the story behind the story of that family is even weirder than the story that you see. Yeah, it's like, it's it's as if Sion Sono thought, actual gangs, they're not crazy and violent enough for one of my movies. I'm going to have to step this up a bit. Mm, and have a death cult. Yes. Which I'm guessing is sort of sadist. Yeah, kind of. It's it's one of those things where they just, they, they do scary things and that's who they are. And it's not really more specific than that, which I think is fair enough. Yeah. Um, Young Days is sort of the hero, isn't he? Yeah. Yeah. And I'm surprised how well he equips himself. There is a risk that when you're playing the hero in a film that has characters like Mira and Buffer, you are just going to disappear because there's no way that being basically decent is going to stand out against them. But yeah, credit to him, as you say, he pulls it off. He equips himself well, you know. I mean, there's been many cases of actors rapping, especially in American movies. Mm. Uh, Snoop Dogg in particular, he's done a few turns. I think he's in a, <laughs> yeah. a horror movie that you can never remember the name of, and that's supposed to be painful. The sheer <laughs> disdain with which he said but, yeah. turns there was impressive. I enjoyed that a lot. <laughs> but yeah, he's he's done quite well for himself as an actor. He he doesn't really push the boat out. He's just a general likable guy. Mm, yeah. You know, I, which hearing some of his hip-hop, it seems kind of alike in, in tone. Mm, yeah. I think there are some rappers who've managed to sort of push a bit further out and have become something that you'd feel comfortable calling a character actor without laughing. You know, I think Mos Def is good. I think Queen Latifah is a good actor. But as you say, a, a lot of the problem is the classic problem with any kind of pop star acting is that you get called to play yourself. Yeah, yeah, it's an easy way in. Mm. It's uh, kind of goes the great lengths to explain, you know, I struggle to explain David Bowie because his acting career was very much not that. Yeah, absolutely. And I don't know, I think part of it is pragmatic because 
<laughs> I'm a man who's watched Free Jack, so I know what happens when someone takes a very, very famous pop star and just drops them into a film and thinks, yeah, there's, we don't need to set that up. People will absolutely accept seeing Mick Jagger as a bounty hunter from the future. So I suppose maybe typecasting is a way of easing that process, a way of sort of allowing the audience to just get over the hump of thinking, is he acting? I've got his records. What's going on? You know, it's a good way in for people, though, and it's not something which really travels. Mm. Um, it's kind of as a marketing exercise. It's kind of inspired a choice of young days because, as I mentioned, Japanese hip hop has not travelled whatsoever. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's no K-pop. Yeah, <laughs> you know. But as far as getting his name out there in the world, he couldn't have picked a better project to get back, get on board with because see and so no, he has a cult of we us weirdos. Yeah, that's the thing. This is the second Sion Sono film I've seen after Anti-Porno. And the overwhelming question I had after I watched this was, is Sion Sono the Japanese Ken Russell? Yes. That's simpler than I expected. Great. <laughs> <laughs> he really is, because his movies, uh, he kind of goes absolutely overload in them. Mm. Um, he started as a visual artist, I believe, and uh, Ken Russell did a lot of documentaries about art and art Indeed. history. Yeah. Um, in two very good box sets on BFI. Yeah, they're really um, great. Yeah. And both nuts. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Which I don't know whether uh, Sion Sono has done his The Devils yet, a movie so controversial that it basically terrifies the entire establishment. A movie so controversial that Warner Brothers still refused to allow it to be released on course. Hmm. It's, yeah. it's incredible how much of a raw nerve that thing took. Mm. And he's gone on record of saying it's about blasphemy. It's about. Yeah being a blasphemer, whether the, the, the term is for that mm. words. But yeah, it's a very spot on analogy because uh, he is an odd duck. Mm -hmm. I mean, this is a guy who had a heart attack, nearly died, uh, and it never stopped him. He had a heart attack, nearly died, and then made a movie with Nicolas Cage. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, when you put it like that, I can see the, the bravery behind it, yeah. <laughs> Usually, it's the other way around. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yeah, that's very true. Uh, Nicholas Cage seems to be accruing himself a, a good collection of weirdo directors to work with. I mean, I know you did not like Mandy, but that is at least a, a bold swing. You know, oh, yeah, it could have been about 40 minutes shorter, but yeah, I appreciate what I was doing. But that, and you know, lending your lending your star clout to Richard Stanley, who hadn't made uh, I think the last time Richard Stanley made a film aptly enough was when the great old ones ruled the planet and humanity had yet to evolve, which started his interest in HP Lovecraft. Um. Yeah, it was, what you call, who is it called? Um, one of the, I never remember who did it in his uh, adaptation of 
Ireland of Lost Souls, there was one actor oh, yeah. who basically tanked his career by refusing to do stuff. Val Kilmer. Uh, yeah. Oh, it was Val Kilmer. I was thinking of somebody else. Oh, well, man. I mean, Kilmer was a pain on set. Brando was difficult to work with, but Brando's son had just died. So yeah, I think it's a kind of more understandable reason to be arsy and difficult there, whereas Val Kilmer was just being Val Kilmer. Yeah. But uh, Tokyo Tribe, though, I mean, g- generally, did you like it? it? It's a hard film to come down on one side on, because yeah, it's kind of like assault in movie form. But And mostly I liked that, I think. Mostly it, it did work for me. I suppose the big problem I had with it that we should get out of the way is its treatment of female characters. Yeah. I mean, even as somebody who likes the director and likes this, it's kind of ugly mm-hmm. yeah uh, like the scene at the beginning where it introduces uh mirror it has this young uh police officer mm-hmm. who um young woman attractive you know heads up to mirror who's selling or giving away mixtapes out of the back of his van i think if i remember correctly which is quite a quaint thing for a big time gang boss to be doing but yeah fair enough i guess it is technically illegal and to head back to that uh, shot of introducing all the different gangs, in doing that, he has his knife, flips it open, mm. all the buttons, like popping them off one by one, to reveal her chest, and he rubs the knife along her chest, saying, this is where this gang is, this is where that gang is, this is where the other gang is. And if that's not bad enough, um, the way the, act, the woman has been acted, or directed to act in that scene, it's almost as if she likes it. Yeah. Mm. I felt like when that happened, I thought maybe this is kind of an opening gambit and I could cut it some slack. But every time a woman appears, it is maybe not as like intense or as protracted as that, but it is still pretty leery. Yeah. And I know there'll be a school of thought that says, oh, well, these are gangsters. Uh, They're not very respectful to women in real life. But, you know, in real life, they also don't rap all the time so you know i feel like realism is not a defense you can use for this movie and uh, in real life it doesn't have woman what was the old woman say again as she introduces it uh slamming beats from the ass end of hell which lasts the entirety of the movie and the movie is supposed to effectively be like one long night yeah so she is some crazy good DJ. <laughs> That's true. Yeah, I thought <laughs> doing, of that. <laughs> doing this all that time. Just... Uh, you know, styles. at her age too, it's got some stamina. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I think that's a problem. But I, I also think that. It, it comes to a point somewhere around the reveal of the possibly satanic cult where you think. Oh, I kind of get it. You know, it's just there to pile excess on top of excess. And Mm. once you get that, it becomes kind of, I don't don't want to say harmless, but because it is clearly going to provoke to a great extent, but you can see a a bit of the mischief behind it. Yeah, I mean, that that scene with the the knives, I mean, it's not the first only time he does it either. I think he does Mm. it another time, not quite in the same context, but using, I guess the only way to say this, a knife in a sexual way. Yeah. And it's 
appreciated in the yeah. way that it's uh, directed. That's that's scavy as hell. But beyond that, I don't think it's really mean spirited. To be honest, I don't think it has a mean spirit to really. Yeah, mean born in its body. I think there's that. That's probably true. There is like part of me where I thought I was not bothered by anti-porno and anti-porno I mean there's a reason why it's got the word porno in the title but I, I guess the difference with anti-porno is that the morality of it just flips over so many times that at the end you, you stop trying to get a moral bead on what this is saying and you just think oh it's mischief you know again it's mischief but I think there is again an element of that in Tokyo Tribe I mean, going uh, anti-porno, uh, that was part of, or I think it was Nakatsu's effort to yeah. revive the long-dead genre of Japanese cinema, which is called pinky, pinky movies. Mm, yeah. Uh, which were an attempt to get young people into cinemas by having very sexualised movies, lots of flesh on display. You make it sound like some elaborate strategy, like this. Oh, I mean, can cinema attendance is down, but we haven't oh, tried was, Norks yet. Was. We haven't tried Norks as a strategy. <laughs> Maybe that'll work. Yeah, uh, the Japanese teenagers like Norks. <laughs> who knew? <laughs> Did you see any other of the uh, Roman Porno Reloaded films that Nikatsu did? I didn't, but uh, anti-porno was kind of like, you want a Roman porno movie? I'll give you a Roman porno movie. Exactly. But no. Yeah. I have no desire... I didn't see the other ones. I have no desire to see any more of them, but I saw... um, Even though one of them is directed by uh, Hideo Nakata, which is, you know, a big get. But I saw anti-porno and I saw... Wet Woman in the Wind, which fantastic title, don't get me wrong, no complaints about the title. But anti-porno, as you say, just puts a bomb under the whole concept of redoing these movies so efficiently that when I watched Wet Woman in the Wind, I thought, yeah, there's there's no pressing reason for this to exist. And everything that's dodgy in it, and there's a lot of stuff that's dodgy in Wet Woman in the Wind, is kind of it's worse because you can't even look back and say, well, it was a different time or they were breaking new ground. It's just preserving a dodgy thing for no reason. The thing is, some of these movies, like back in the, uh, oh, I can never remember the name of this one. I'm going to reference something and I can't remember the name of it, which is uh, really off. But there was one in the 60s or 70s, uh, a Japanese one, which is just high style. It's a non-sploitation, sexploitation movie. It's quite well regarded. Mm. Uh, I could probably look the name up, but there was an artistry to it. Yeah. And I think there's an artistry to see on Sonar movies in all that chaos. There is oh, like definitely. some sort of spirit to it. Yeah. I don't know if you've seen like his his Christmas movie. Have you heard of his Christmas movie? No. Um, Love and Peace. Sounds nice. I'm sure it's you <laughs> rated, right? One for all the family quite accessible to all the family, funnily enough. But uh, it's about a guy, a salary man, working in an office who's bullied fiercely by everybody. Um, he goes up to the roof one day in which there's a man selling uh, turtles, tiny little turtles. Mm. It's like, he's never known love like this before. He's got a new best friend. He's found a turtle. 
Um, and he comes out of his shell. And one day when he's walking through the street, he happens to meet a punk band. And the punk band in there, you know, joking with, says, ah, oh, how about you? How about you come and sing for us? And he's amazing. Um, <laughs> and one thing happens where he's separated uh, from his turtle. His turtle ends up going into the sewers. Uh, and he's in this little community in the sewers with a lot of toys, which are living creatures. And a man who's heavily implied at being Santa, and he goes off and has a rock star career. <laughs> and eventually, that little turtle becomes Picadon, that's his name, Picadon, but as a huge kaiju who's wrecking Tokyo. God, Mitt Sion Sono's version of Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles <laughs> sounds better than the Western one. Um, and I think he stops being a pop star and he goes back to being his best friends with Picadon. It's a weird movie. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, I think the thing about Sono, and I've seen nowhere near as many of his films as you have, but what I can see is that in the best way possible, he has bags of talent with no concept of good taste at all <laughs> and he reminds you that actually that can be a very good thing sometimes oh, i mean he's the biggest punk in cinema as far as i see it mm. not that there's a lot of competition but no no but i don't know who else would you say has that rebellious spirit now obviously takashi miike is still bossing it on his nine million film <laughs> yes he is um Besides them two, not many people, really. I thought Baccarat not... was punk as hell. I really admired yeah. the punkness of that movie. Like, in the 90s, we had loads of directors who had that sort of impish punk spirit. Yeah. But all, all those people have kind of become establishment. Like, the Coen brothers, they were very punk in the 80s and 90s. Yeah. But now, uh, yeah, the kind of establishment. Same with, like... Uh, Peter Jackson as well. Well, yeah, Peter Jackson's a pretty extreme case, isn't he? Yeah. yeah I say it's so annoying, it's flying the flag for utter mad weirdos. Yes, completely. It seems slightly easier to get away with this sort of stuff in Asia as well, which I don't think is anything to do with censorship standards. I think it's to do with the, the sheer demand for product that seems to exist there like it's hard to make a really punk movie that doesn't care how you feel in Britain because there are about three British films a year that get <laughs> wide distribution and all of them are about Winston Churchill so you know if you step outside that but the fact that Japan has like this thriving B cinema and straight to home release cinema industry makes it easier to just do something that is, in Evel Morris's words, fast, cheap and out of control. Yeah, I think it's cultural. It all comes down to the culture of Japan. Yeah. Which, uh, it's all about respecting your elders, very sexually repressed. Mm. Um, and also, like, suicide is a stupidly big killer over there. Yeah, that's so very true. It's, it's a society with its problems. So, to exercise that sort of spirit which can't really exist in their society, to have some of the wildest, wackiest and most overtly sexual films that you ever like, what you say. 
Yeah, yeah, I think that's very true. But hang on, Rob, are we not also very boring and very good at sexual repression? What's going wrong? <laughs> well, the thing, the difference is there, Graham. They have a film industry at a start. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, um, I like how kind of, again, this is a word that I I don't often get to use in a positive context, but I think this is this, this shows how good it can be. The sense of humour is often gleefully lowbrow. It's full of good, dumb jokes. Yeah, uh, weirdly gory ones as well. There's a bit in it where for some reason, mm. I don't know why, Bupper has in his main room where he has all of his meals and he does all of his sex aid work, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> um, Just the, the dining room come sex toy room. Yes, we've all got one. Yeah. He, a brew, a door pulls away and it's got this massive death fan. And in oh, that scene, yeah. it's got some weird practical gags. Some weird practical gags. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, the one that I was thinking of, and it's just a, a small thing, but there's a fight in a noodle restaurant, and there's one guy who just has like these really long noodles just spilling out of his mouth that he's halfway through eating, so he looks like a news uh, Doctor Who fans in the audience. And every time he swings his head around, these noodles make an audible sort of whoosh, whoosh sound and you think that that is such a fun piece of foley work i love that yeah that's like the big guy isn't it yeah like, yeah it's a piece of foley work that absolutely dictates the the humor of the scene like again like a cartoon does yeah he is a, he's this is a cartoon completely let's be fair yeah this is a big cartoon yeah, I think it is. And that kind of live action cartoon quality is something that can either be really stunning or really oppressive if you do it badly. And despite having my quibbles with the film, I never I never had that feeling where you think, all right, Sion, we get it, which on paper you would think you would have. Hmm. Yeah, he... I don't know how it is, some sort of magic balancing act that he's sold his soul to the devil to be able to pull off. He's he sold his soul to the literal demagogue party. <laughs> yeah, because he could also describe that as a, why don't you play in hell? That's a movie which is bizarre. The whole endeavour there is the one to make a gangster movie for the gangster boss's wife who's coming out of prison and they want a surprise her. <laughs> Right. <laughs> and I'm not going to say the name because it's, yeah, it's the F-Bombers. That's the name of the filmmaking troupe who are making this movie. Right. They've kind of gone down in cultdom themselves. That's very cool. I, I like film about amateur filmmakers, so maybe I'll check that one out. I think there's, there's a few I've wanted to check out. One day... I will get to see Love Exposure. One day I will book out that month and I will watch Love Exposure. Do it in two two-hour screenings. So it's like Love Exposure Part One, Love Exposure Part Two. It's very accessible. Yeah, yeah, I suppose that's a, a reasonable way to look at it. Yeah. And um 
<laughs> the first part ends with a very Jap typically Japanese bloody version of um, penal decapitation, I think is the, the best way to describe it. <laughs> decapitation, Rob. That's what you should yeah. call this. Oh, I never thought of that. That's a good name. <laughs> Probably works better in writing, I think. Yeah. Um, yeah, I remember you really liked Tag as well, didn't you? That will alienate people, though. Because oh, right, is... then the others warned. Oh, okay, fair enough, yeah. Um, <laughs> that one, how he emerged into the world was with the infamous now seen in Suicide uh, Club, how a bunch of Japanese schoolgirls jumped onto a train line to commit suicide. It's mm. super influential. Not influential, infamous. Mm. Influential is wrong word. Yeah, Tag kind of takes that spirit because um, there's a scene in it where a bunch of Japanese schoolgirls are in a bus going on an adventure in the country road and all of a sudden, for no reason, a massive wind whips through the, the air, cuts the bus in half and the hero is the only person who survives. It's fastening her shoelaces at the time. Everybody else has been cut in half. Right. It's like, hello, movie. <laughs> what I'm going to be doing right now. <laughs> I remember we did that on Cinema Eclectica and it was one of my favourite episodes of Cinema Eclectica because it was like Auteurs Week. Uh, you did Tag by Sion Sonal. I did, uh, I think I did On Body and Soul by Elder Cohen Yeady. Aidan did Killing of a Sacred Deer by Yorgos Lanthimos. And the film of the week was Good Time by the Safdie Brothers. And I think you've stopped halfway through and said, have you like just considered how amazing it is that we live in a time when all of those directors can be out there just doing absolutely unique things that don't resemble anyone else's cinema yeah it's never used to be as good for that as it is now yeah we have a lot of weirdos making a lot of weird movies <laughs> yes cherish your local weirdos yeah and if you haven't got a local weirdo Perhaps you could become that local weirdo. Yeah, there's a vacancy. Yeah, you know, take that. and Because our local weirdo is Paul W.S. Anderson. And honestly, I think somebody needs to take that title from him. <laughs> you can't say that on Twitter because there's a, like, a whole school of people on film Twitter who have a, a complex, critical kind of superstructure to their opinions, which I think is called... Uh, pretending to like bad movies so you can get attention on social media. You mean, I've got to pretend to like the guy who made a series of movies whose entire point for being was, ooh, hey, look at my wife. Ooh, hey, my wife. <laughs> you see, I mean, <laughs> in a different context, he could have been Valerian Boracic, but... <laughs> but not in reality, you said James. <laughs> <laughs> the idea of Sid James directing Resident Evil is also better than the reality we've got, I think. Oh, yeah. I, I created a weird alternate reality, which is better than I was there. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think once we're talking about Sid James directing Resident Evil, I think that's that's a sign that the podcast has to be wound up, really, isn't it? It is. We've gone too far. <laughs> yeah, we're in, we're in the fan casting Sid James zone. Uh, but yeah, if you enjoyed what you've heard, despite that, uh, congratulations. Um... <laughs> oh, before, you, before you close up, it reminds yeah. me of my favourite Edinburgh Cinema Eclectica subtitle. Oh. Uh, 
Sid James and a Japanese ghost walk into a bar. I never bettered that. And I don't know where it came from. It just happened. That's great. And apt. I mean, there isn't a ghost in this, but, you know, it, it's closer than I ever thought I would be to returning to the territory of Sid James and a Japanese ghost. It's uncomfortably close. <laughs> yeah. But if you enjoyed this podcast, uh, please give us a rating, give us a review on your podcast provider of choice, because that really does help us to be pushed to the top of the churning sea that is the modern podcast landscape churning sea full of celebrities talking to their mates uh, and if you like it especially much you can donate to our patreon at www.patreon.com forward slash the geek show where you will get our other movie podcast director's lottery and a bonus episode of pop screen every single month but until next week with your next episode that's been your lot from pop screen i've been graham and i've been <laughs> and i've been rob and we'll see you next week. Bye.